If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning there, um, it's been an interesting year so far, has it not? Has anybody felt like personally attacked by the year 2020? Like, like 2020 is after you, specifically. <laughs> I'm the only one, not the only one, <laughs> amen. It has been a tumultuous year to say the least, amen. Um, from fires across the world to uh, locusts swarming the continent of Africa um, to now viruses racking our nation with pandemic implications. Um, it seems that every month seems to bring, y'all seen the, the, the meme with like Star Trek Picard at the, at the, at the beginning, like damage report? It's like every day is this waking up moment of, okay, what broke while I was asleep? Um, what is no longer true that was true yesterday? Um, and it seems to be a constant onslaught of uncertainty in our lives. And as much as we try to plan and prepare and save, there seems to be something outside of our control, isn't there? As much as we try to insulate our families, ourselves, our children from the realities of uncertainty and anxiety and worry and fear, it seems there are some things that we cannot shield others from, even ourselves. And so I thought it would be fitting today to find comfort in God's word because there are some things that are certain. There are some things that will remain, no matter what else may come or go, no matter who else may come or go, no matter what life and 2020, we're still in March, by the way, um, no matter what the first 100 days of March of uh, 2020 has brought us, there are some things that are certain that we can build our lives upon and never be disappointed. Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, And the church of Corinth is a beautiful church filled with beautifully gifted people, prophecy, tongues, excellence in worship, all the visible gifts that you would expect to see at any thriving megacity church, which Corinth was uh, a big city church. And yet Paul writes an admonishment to them, a correction to them, saying, you've got all these other things, but you've missed the principal things. And so 1 Corinthians 13, oftentimes known as the love chapter for good reason, because the whole thing is building a case that love is the superior way, that you can have prophecy and gifts and tongues and all these other visible external things, but without the central ethic of love, it's meaningless. But Paul does something interesting at the end of this chapter that I think can encourage us today. Let's read 2 Corinthians 13. Verses 8 through 13. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. It says, Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. And verse 13 is the key here. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These three remain. These three abide the same word that we see in John chapter 15, that if, I, if you, my word abides in you and you abide in me, that same abiding word, that same remaining word, the same sense of steadfastness, 
All these other things may cease. All these other things may come and go. But these three will remain. Faith, hope, and love. And so if I were a practical man, which I am, I would tend to see that I would want to build my life on the things that remain. I would want to build my life and put my treasure in the things that are going to last. Faith, hope, and love. So I wanted today, those are our three points. I want to walk through those three things. If Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying that these things will abide, even after all these other external things were ceased, even with the uncertainty of our time and of our world, these three things will remain. It seems prudent that we would understand what those things are and how we can walk in them. So let's start with faith. These three things remain faith, hope, and love. Faith is first, and so we're going to start with faith. And faith is, depending on your church background, if you have a church background, it's either a vague, mystical thing that's out there that one day that you can have enough to get what God wants to give you, or faith is this highly technical theological term that forms the foundation of belief. And both of those are semi-true. I define faith simply as a trust in God that produces obedience. I get that from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 7, which says, So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And so you see an active part of faith. We are walking. We're not just sitting and waiting. We are walking by faith. But it's not the same thing as sight. And so there must be a leap. There must be some trust there because I can't see with my eyes. I've got to trust who is speaking, not just where I'm going. And so we see that trust in God that produces obedience is faith. But rather than give you a long list of definitions and examples, I figured I would tell you a story that would help us illustrate how to live by faith. Faith, hope, and love remain. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the Word of God says. And so what is this faith that we must have that will bring a certainty and a comfort to our lives? I think the most profound story of faith is found in Genesis chapter 22. Some of you know the story of Abraham and Isaac. When you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 22. When Abraham was 75 years old, God came to him and said, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Up until this point, him and his wife had been childless and barren, having no children, which was seen at that time as a, as a curse from the Lord. And so they were grieved and wanted to have children. And so the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, although you're 75 years old, you're going to have a child. Now, for most of us, that's not good news. Amen. <laughs> but for Abraham, that was good news. He had been waiting on this his whole life. But how, how many people know how long it took for Abraham to wait until that child was born. For 25 years, Abraham waited. Abraham would be 100 years old. His wife, Sarai, would be 25 years later. That's when Isaac would be born. And so Abraham got a promise at 75, didn't see that promise fulfilled until age 100. So him and the whole business with Hagar, we give Abraham a hard time, but I've never waited 25 years for nothing from the Lord. So I don't know what Abraham felt. I don't know the worry and the anxiety that he felt that maybe I did something wrong that he must have felt over 25 years of waiting for the promise. And yet he waited. Then his son Isaac was finally born and he grew up. And then God spoke to Abraham again in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. And it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Verse 2, take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
Go to the land of Moriah or Mount Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Story seemed to take a little turn, didn't it? God, I waited 25 years for this promised child. He finally is born. He's finally grown up. I love him. He's my son, the promised one, whom the seed of promise will be given. And one day, randomly, you tell me to go sacrifice him on an altar. Verse 3, I can't imagine this with two sons. This faith already is rocking me. In verse 3, it says, So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place where God had told him about. God told Abraham, sacrifice your one and only son whom you love. And Abraham said, okay. Okay. Can you imagine the conversation with his wife that night? Hey, by the way. I don't know about y'all like me. Jenny and I often kind of catch up towards the end of the night. And so sometimes big things just you just forget about. You, make, you kind of drop a bomb at the end of the night. Like, oh, by the way, you know what I'm saying, you know, the house burned down. You know, I, just, I forgot to mention to you. Right? Oh, by the way, I lost my job. I forgot to tell you. Right? This is one of those mega moments of, oh, by the way, the same God who gave Isaac is, ask, is asking for him back. So we're going to go on a little trip. Trust me. And so Abraham takes Isaac, his son, and two young servants, and they go to this mountain. In verse 7, Isaac starts to get a little curious. Isaac, verse 7 of Genesis 22 says, Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Does it sound familiar? Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. Was Abraham lying just now? Abraham lying. You see, faith isn't just a mental construct. It's not just believing some things are true. Faith that produces obedience looks like this. Faith that says, God, I don't know what you're doing, but you're good. God, I can't explain how this would make sense to anyone else, but you're good. And so God will provide a burnt offering. God will provide us in this moment of need. I know this to be true because I know who God is. I don't understand what's happening, but I know who my God is. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have withheld your one and only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide or Yahweh Jireh, where we get the word Jehovah Jireh. So today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. That, to me, is what faith looks like. It says, God, I don't understand. God, I even disagree. But I will follow you step by step because you are God and I am not. I can't explain what's happening, but I will follow the voice of the Lord wherever he may take me. 
And we find out that Abraham was not a liar, even though he was willing to lay his hand on his son, God stopped him and did provide that ram that Abraham said that he would. Later on in the book of Hebrews, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offering will be traced through Isaac. So the promised child, in verse 19, he considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back. So even in the New Testament, they're writing that because of Abraham's faith, it was accounted to him righteousness because he believed God that even if he would have slayed his son, he believed that God could bring the son back because God's word is true. And God promised that through your son, Isaac, all the nations will be blessed. And so although famine and disease and uncertainty may be racking our world, and we know that God has a plan for the lives of people around us, Even in those moments when we don't see what God is doing, we trust his character and we follow him because he knows what he's doing. Abraham, who was willing to offer his own son, was not be the only one to offer his son, but we'll get back to that. Faith remains. Next thing is hope. Hope. And I struggle with hope personally. Um, I am am a more pessimist than optimist. I like to call it a realist right? <laughs> but hope is, is a necessary category for the Christian. And I define hope as a confident expectation. It's not a naive unknowing of what's happening, but it doesn't matter. No, it's a confident expectation that God would do what he said he would do. That's what it means to have hope. Where do I get that definition from? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived. God has prepared these things for those who love him. Do you believe that to be true? Do you believe that God has prepared things for those who love them no matter what it looks like? That's what it means to have hope. Turn your Bibles to Psalms 42. Hope is one of those hard things for some because... There's very little reason for hope if you were just to look outside in your circumstances. Maybe it's a prognosis. Maybe it's I've tried this over and over and over and it does not seem to be working. Maybe I've prayed, I've cried, I've fasted, I've gone to the elders, I've done all the things that I've gone to do and I don't see God working. And so over time, hope takes a hit. Hope gets bruised, hope gets damaged, and all of a sudden one day hope goes dark. In Psalms 42, we find a kindred spirit. I'm going to read the entire song because I think it would minister to God's people. And it says in verse 1, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While all day long people say to me, where is your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Is that anybody's story right now? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. But there is a sense of turmoil, and I've gone to church excited, and I've gone, done all the right things. I wanted to worship. I've led the procession, the psalmist says, into the house of the Lord. And yet my soul is in turmoil. Yet I don't know what to do. 
Yet I feel stuck in a dark place and hope seems naive. Put your hope in God, verse 5. For I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and the Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. The Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones, while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Where did the psalmist find hope in, church? Was it in a promise of a change of circumstances? Was it even in a promise of rescue or deliverance? No. The psalmist found hope where we must find hope. It's in the person of God, the nature of God, and who God is, not just what he does for us when we need him. And that's a hope that's imperishable. That's a hope that the world can't take away, as the old folks used to say. That's a hope that becomes incorruptible. Because God will never change, and so his word will never change, and so his promises will never change, so that means my hope in him will never change. That's that's what it means to have a hope that remains. And lastly, love. Love. Love is a complicated word, y'all. I love pizza, and I love my wife. I know that's not the same, but we have one word for it, and so there we are. And so love is one of those words that's harder to find. Everyone's kind of got their own definition of love. But as best as I can make it, the word agape that's used here refers to affection, loyalty, and responsibility. Love refers to affection, loyalty, and responsibility. That's what it means to love. So it's not just a feeling, but it's not without feelings. It's not just a fleeting commitment, but a a permanent one but also means I have some responsibilities to one another. That's what it means to love. Where do I get that? We read it early in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Amen? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Here's a question for us. Have we ever experienced a love like that from someone? A mother, a father, a husband, a wife, a child. If we really wrestle with this implication that Corinthians 13 is mentioning more than just platitudes, if we take these words seriously, that love is patient, that it's kind, that it finds no joy in unrighteousness but rejoices in the truth. What if you got into an argument with someone you love and you didn't want to be right? You just wanted righteousness to win out. You weren't defending your position. You wanted to make sure that they felt loved even in the midst of conflict. What if you actually kept no record of wrongs? Think about that for a second. Think about how much danger you would put yourself in if you actually kept no record of wrongs. Someone could do something to you and you would forget it as if it never happened and trust them again. You would find yourself in harm's way 
to love someone like this. Why? Because we're sinners. We're imperfect people. We're imperfect people at best. And so where do we see a love like this that we see in Corinthians 13? Where can we experience a love like this? And to me, the most powerful expression of love in the scriptures comes from Romans 5. It says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person or a good person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what love looks like, y'all. Love looks like I'm not going to wait for you to apologize first. I'm going to come get you. While we were raising our fists at the heavens, declaring that we're going to live our own way, Christ died for us. His blood covering sins that we would repent for over and over and over again. He died for the sins that we like and we feel comfortable with and we don't even want to repent from in turn. That's what true love looks like, and that's what this love that endures looks like, and that's where Paul is making his point, that faith, hope, and love are coming together in the person of Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. So even the faith that Paul commends to us is not from us. It's actually a gift from God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so faith, hope, and love, faith is a gift from Jesus. Hope, 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, what? Our hope. So we don't just have hope because of Jesus. We have hope in Jesus. He actually is our hope. And love, as we read earlier, that Christ died for us. And so 1 Corinthians 13.13, where we started from, begins to turn the corner. We begin to see that faith, hope, and love are not things that point to us at all. Doesn't point to our devotion, doesn't point to our confession, doesn't point to the decision that we made long ago, the decision that we're going to make this morning. It actually points all to Jesus. We have a faith from Jesus, we have a hope in Jesus, and we have a love produced and shown and demonstrated by Jesus. And so why does faith, hope, and love remain? Because they are the person and work of Jesus himself. That's why they remain. Because they point to Jesus. And I, spoiler alert, Jesus ain't going nowhere, y'all. Jesus ain't going nowhere. And this is why no matter the storms that be raging around us, no matter the anxiety or the worry or the fear that may try to overtake us, if we build our hope and our lives on a faith from Jesus, a hope in Jesus, and a love demonstrated by Jesus, we will never be destroyed. We will never be disappointed. And as I close, let me end with Paul's words here. He ends with a little bit of a a little bit of a turn here. Now, these three remain, verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why does Paul say faith, hope, and love are important? The Bible clearly says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without hope, we live in despair and worry and anxiety. So why would Paul say that love is the greatest of all of them? Let me make my case for why I think Paul is, is saying that love is the greatest. You see, one day, 
If you're in Christ, faith will become sight. We won't have to believe anymore. We will see. And one day, hope will become our reality. We don't have to wait on God to do. One day, we will be standing face to face. So faith will run its course. Hope will run its course. But what will happen to our love for the Father? Why is love the greatest? Is because although faith and hope will run its course, love will always remain. Romans 8, 37 and 38 says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who love us. For I am persuaded, listen carefully, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where is love going, y'all? Nowhere. Faith will be completed, hope will be completed, but love is indestructible. Because one day when we're standing face to face, our love for him and from him will only grow. It'll only increase every single day for the rest of eternity. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the best day of your life every day for the rest of eternity? Can you imagine never getting tired of singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Can you imagine never getting tired of casting your crown and bending your knees and lifting your hands to the one who sits on the throne forever and ever and ever? That's a love that is indestructible, imperishable, and defatigable. We're talking about love that never grows tired. It only grows in measure day by day by day. And that's why Paul says love is the greatest because faith will go away. I have faith in what God will do, but one day God is going to do that thing. I have hope for what God has said in the promises, but one day he will keep all his promises, and those will be made perfect and complete. But not even death, Romans 37 and 38 says, not even death will separate us from the love of God, because in death we will meet the love of God. So the question that remains for us today is simply this, what have you built your life on? Have you built your life on the things that will remain? Faith from God, hope in God, love demonstrated by God? Or have you built your life on anything else, no matter how good it may be? Have you built your life on the things that will remain? We saw in the last few days pensions and retirement and investment accounts leveled. We've seen trips and schools and graduation ceremonies in uncertainty. And if you had pushed your, cho- your hope on one day I'll be happy when I get out of this place and graduate, <laughs> I'm not calling nobody's names, I'm not looking at nobody. If you had put your hope in that, you're probably going to be disappointed. If you had put your hope in that nest egg that you've been furiously investing into, you've been proven to be disappointed this week. If you put your hope on, if I, can just, if I can just make it to vacation time, then I'll be okay. If you put your hope on that, you've been reminded this week that we cannot put our hope and our trust in anything or anyone else but Jesus. Faith from Jesus, hope in Jesus, and love demonstrated by Jesus. If we build our lives upon those things, we will never be disappointed. Would you pray with me now? Father, God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you are at work. 
God, I thank you for Jesus, who was the author and perfecter of our faith, the one that started the good work that will see it to its end. God, I thank you that faith is a gift. We don't have to build it. Even if we have small faith in a big God, that is enough. Thank you, God, for who you are. There, you may be sitting in this place or watching online, and you've heard about a God, you've heard about a faith that you've never experienced. I don't want you to just hear this as a good message, as a good time. I want you to hear it as God speaking to you, calling you into a relationship with him now. If you're watching on live, or you're here in this place right now, and you don't know the God of faith, hope, and love, don't just leave with good principles for life. Hear what an invitation to a relationship with Jesus who is alive and is calling you to come and die and live with him. If you're watching on the live stream, here's what I want you to do. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And while we do that, fill out a connect card. Let us know that you have questions. Let us know that you've made a decision. Let us know that you want someone to walk with you on this journey of faith. I'm not asking you to to repeat a prayer. I'm not asking you to to say anything other than I'm willing to have a conversation. And if you're willing to take that step of faith, I want to meet you in that. But in order for us to know that, please just let us know by filling out a connect card. And if you're in this place, as we stand and sing, I would invite you to pray right where you are. And then don't leave this place without having a conversation with me or Pastor Jake. We want to pray with you. We want to talk with you. We want to encourage you on this journey of faith. Don't leave this place hearing about a God and not knowing him.